One of the core themes in the Dharma that is somewhat downplayed in Western culture is the very uh, consistent emphasis that the Buddha placed upon human interdependence, connection, as a foundation for healing. And not only the famous uh, sutta, Upada, I think it's, it, it means the half sutta, where Ananda asks the Buddha, is it true that wise, compassionate friends are half of the path? And the Buddha says that's not true. They're the entirety of the path. There's nothing without them. And then there's list after list in the numbered discourses where the Buddha says before you can develop any of the spiritual uh, faculties that will heal and will even cultivate the possibility of uh, experiencing inner peace, there has to be a foundation of empathetic human connection. Um, so why is that? Well, the core drive for all human beings is attachment, not individuation. That was actually, for a little while, psychologists thought it was individuation. That was a terrible mistake. And as we know from the work of John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, uh, Mary Main, etc., that the core drive that we are born with, and this has been established through cross-disciplines, uh, neuropsychology and onwards that the human brain is wired to look for connection with other humans. The first thing that really gets wired up, fusiform gyrus in the brain, is what allows us to make out other faces, other facial expressions. Uh, this is because, frankly, human beings need other human beings to regulate our emotions and regulate our nervous systems with sympathetic nervous systems. It could be called limbic co-regulation. Without other people, we essentially become dysregulated. But what this means, if you were a squirrel and something frightened you, you would run up a tree, find a very distant branch, and eventually your heartbeat and your nervous system would respond to normal. If you were a bird and something terrified you, you take flight and wind up on a perch somewhere, and then you would deactivate. You wouldn't need to connect with another Jewish bird <laughs> at Whole Foods beforehand and talk about, talk about the challenges of our clinical practice or whatever we do. We, so you, but we as human beings need to connect. And what we we tend to believe that the connection happens verbally, but in fact, for the first two or three years of life, the core connections that make us feel secure are all nonverbal. They are emotional. And they're not left, hem left hemispheric, which is not fully wired. They're right hemispheric. And essentially what we're doing is we are crying and whining and shouting and gesticulating and making utterances, and if we're lucky, the mother sees that, and she mirrors back what we express, and then she, in a very gentle way, offers a mark which lets us know that we're okay. And if you're interested in this, there's a great psychologist, Peter Fonagy, who's pretty much uh, along with uh, David Wallen, uh, writes a lot about the importance of early 
mirroring and empathy. So if we establish this connection, this ability to express ourselves and be seen and empathetically mirrored by a caregiver, then what's created is called a secure base. And the secure base is essentially that feeling that there are people there who no matter what we experience, we can return to and they will deactivate our emotional states. They will help us become less frightened, less angry, less shocked, less hungry, whatever. They will essentially restore us to a state of um, relative neutral. If we get the secure base, we as human beings grow up to be adults that can confidently explore the world and can self-soothe because we have enough of a we can integrate all of our emotions into our sense of who we are, our sense of self. But if that secure base isn't established, if, we, if somebody to the back could press the door button. Thank you. If we don't experience mirroring and empathy on a reliable, reliable basis in childhood, what happens is we uh, experience entire impulses and feelings in ourselves as aliens as monsters, as dark, shadowy things that have to be essentially removed, repressed. The more we adapt strategies to get love by repressing parts of ourselves and amplifying other parts of ourselves, we wind up like Donald Trump, our president, by the way, a national nightmare. Well, that's not only the way we can become, but generally, Cluster B personality disorders are often the result, which is essentially strategies to get connection in a safe way, whether by performance or antisocial means or by anger or by histrionic methodologies. So uh, all of those experiences those patterns of whether we receive love and empathy or we don't are stored in the right hemisphere, which increasingly in adult life becomes unconscious, which means we can't, through language or reason or logic, try to overcome those patterns, those behaviors that make us run away from intimacy or choose the wrong partners who are always unavailable. We have to go about healing in an entirely different strategy. So another part that should be mentioned is some of these early experiences, whether they're in fear or abandonment or abuse, can create a traumatic experience. Now, a traumatic experience is when a normal impulse to, fly, to fight or to flee or to do something that protects ourselves is immobilized. Why is it immobilized? Well, especially in childhood, but in any situation where the threat is overwhelming, if the child experiences a caretaker that is suddenly unavailable or suddenly shaming and rejecting or suddenly abusive or suddenly frightening, literally the old vagal vagus nerve is activated and all of the central structures of the viscera, which is the stomach, chest, and throat, are essentially deactivated. We go into a freeze state. The left frontal lobe, which narrates experience, is switched off. 
Broca's region, which adds language, is switched off. And eventually, the hippocampus, which, mem which creates memory, is switched off. And yet, during traumatic situations, your right amygdala is still recording. Now, the problem is the right amygdala is a very dumb recording system. It records everything that's present in a situation, whether it was actually part of a threat or not. I'll give you an example. If you're a child and you're suddenly in a car crash, you might not only remember the situation itself and the, the sound of the tires screeching, the headlights, the screams, you might even remember the fact that the Ramones were playing on the radio or that you were on a certain location or that your mother or father were wearing a certain kind of clothing. And all of those sensations, whether they were actually contributory or not, become traumatic memories. And in the future, when you encounter any of those sensations, they become triggers that will reactivate what we will call the, um, the traumatic response, the dissociative response. There's ways to know when there's trauma that has occurred, by the way. Uh, you'll find people will go into hypervigilance, which is looking and reacting as if a threat is present when they're in a totally safe situation. I'm very safe right now, but if I was panting, breathing, my shoulders were locked and I was looking around for a threat, it would mean that in the past, talking in front of a group of people, a traumatic event had happened. And so, even though I'm now safe in this crew, except for some people over here who look kind of questionable, but I would go into a hypervigilant response. That's PTSD, when I'm reacting as if there's a threat present when there isn't. Now, there's other ways that you can spot PTSD as well. Uh, I could go into depersonalization or derealization. Depersonalization is when I'm no longer in my body. I'm floating above as if I can't operate my limbs and I'm watching what's happened, but I can't speak. So my body, and I'm frozen, but I'm still in some way, in a diminished way, taking in the experience. Derealization is when I start to literally, I have a perception of what's present that is very skewed, as if I'm a child, once again, in a powerless situation. So, some of the keys now to bear in mind, uh, to turn this into... Uh, stuff that Steve can hopefully work with um, is one, both trauma and early attachment issues are all stored in what's called implicit memories, which means you have no volitional control over them. In life, there are those times where we have panic attacks. We suddenly freeze when we need to speak up for ourselves. We want to be able to be confident, but we're not confident where we are essentially activated by earlier memories that are triggered by a present situation and suddenly we go back into the exact same response that we did as a child to survive. So if a child, if we ran and hid, then as adults, we will run and hide. If a soldier's in a war and he's constantly bombarded by dangerous weapons that are going off and he's trained to run and hide, to duck, in real life, when somebody touches him on the shoulder, he might suddenly duck 
and start panicking. If a child, to survive an abusive father or mother, to survive an impossible situation, froze and tried to play dead, as an adult in the same situation, we will repeat the same behavior because that's how we survived the first time. And the mind tends to recreate or recontinue the same survival processes, even though those survival processes are no longer necessary as adults. These triggers are so fast, the circuits are so powerful that all the trying to logic with ourselves and say to ourselves, I'm safe, I shouldn't be acting this way, I should be confident, won't work. The right hemisphere is timeless. Events that happened in six months of age can have just as much power over us and be just as unresolved as if they happened six months ago. So think about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere is narrative, it's time stamped. Things that happened six years ago, I couldn't even tell you what I was doing six years ago. But there are traumatic events from my childhood with a drunk, violent, alcoholic father that happened when I was six years old that can activate me and trigger emotional behaviors. Like when I'm with macho uh, men who are aggressive, I go into the... I feel the impulse to go into the exact same response that I did to survive the relationship with my father. Eventually, two personalities emerge. There's the functional personality, which we show to the world and goes to work, and then there's the shadowy trauma personality, which is not integrated, and yet comes up in any triggering situation as a way to survive. To maintain ourselves in the functional personality, the one we feel more comfortable in, we will avoid any situation that triggers us until our lives become increasingly smaller and smaller and we withdraw from any situations that feel even remotely triggering. And this creates a feedback loop. The more we withdraw from interpersonal social situations that might be triggering, the more we cut ourselves off from the very possibility of healing because we are now isolating ourselves. And very often then the result finally is addiction. I'll end with this. Addiction is the attempt to replace other people for emotion regulation with substances and process behaviors. When we have been traumatized in a relationship when our needs have not been met, when we have been abandoned, serially abused, enmeshed, when our relationships have been painful, what we will do is when we are activated with sadness, loneliness, fear, anything, rather than feel those feelings, they will become so overwhelming and the emotions will become so frightening because we haven't developed a way to hold these experiences, we will instead choose to self-numb. So this brings me all the way back to the beginning. The way forward is that vulnerable moment when we connect with someone safe and we learn to, in a very strategic way, talk about all the emotional wounds and traumas that have occurred to bring them from their storage in the dim recesses of the mind and be able to re-narrate them in a way that allows us to fully integrate our lives and no longer avoid 
triggers and no longer make our lives smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, I think that's a good place for Steve to talk about some of the different modalities that he's been using to treat both addicts and the traumatized in his work. I hope some of that may have. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for those of you who don't know me or our relationship, Josh and I have known each other probably for 35 years now. Um, so, it's quite a journey. And we were a good rhythm section. Yeah, and we were a rhythm <laughs> section before we were doing this. So, um, I actually had a New York experience. I, I'm from New York originally. I moved out to LA in 2002. And I, with my, uh, just speaking on the attachment piece and speaking on uh, how these traumatic memories are formed and how we develop resilience is I was uh, going across, I, you know, I got here, and as soon as I got here, I started jaywalking. Because I don't jaywalk in L.A. because they actually give jaywalking tickets. It's actually right outside Refuge Recovery, and against the screen, there's this three-way corner where cops actually hang out because they know they can give some jaywalking tickets. Anyway, um, I've been jaywalking for the last few days with my wife and daughter, and so I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. You know, my, my daughter calls herself a... Uh, She's seven years old. She calls herself a Brooklynier. So mm -hmm. anyway, we um, we've been jaywalking, and we did this jaywalk that it didn't go as well as planned. And this bicycle was coming, you know, full tilt, right? And th we were never in danger. It was one of those moments where you're like, you know, like, dude, I hope you're not gonna like get aggro about this. And he goes by and he does the New York thing, and he says. Nice way of trying to get yourself fucking killed, you fucking idiot! Continue <laughs> <laughs> on his way. First of all, my daughter hates foul language, but she also she's like, why did he call us an idiot? And she wouldn't, she couldn't let go of it. And so the speech that I gave, this is not a pat on the back thing. This is just, you just triggered this. Is I just started, I told her I said he was mostly scared. Right? He was scared, so we got angry. And the conversation continued, and, and, and I, I said, um, she said, well, why, why did he get angry when he got scared? I said, well, you know, he, he probably was worried that he was going to hurt us and hurt himself, and then he'd have all this guilt about hurting us, and, you know, it, it got him angry. She goes, well, why did you get angry? Why, when, when I get scared, I just hug you. <laughs> and so I think that really speaks to everything that you spoke about. In as much as, you know, the whole nature of this journey, as far as I'm concerned with, with trauma, is, you know, I have come over the years to think about um, what we talked about here in Buddha land, uh, that of suffering, mm -hmm. right? Suffering and unsatisfactoriness. Right? The temperature in here is deeply unsatisfactory. <laughs> I'm not being traumatized currently, but it's unsatisfactory. So there's this whole continuum of an endless stream of unsatisfactoriness. I had a Zen teacher once say to me, out of every 1,000 things you do, three will go your way. <laughs> Sound about right? I think it's actually being pretty generous. So like, there's unsatisfactoriness, and then there's like 
the complete insanity that life hoists upon, right? I mean, just, you know, more than unsatisfactory. And so that's what brought me to Buddhist practice. What brought me to Buddhist practice was um, I got sober four months into sobriety. My friend who's here tonight, actually, and we're still buddies after all this time, 28 years ago, brought me to an AA retreat at a Zen Buddhist monastery. And you had the option of sitting and learning how to sit. And I was not, at four months sobriety or whatever it was, I was not like the top candidate for sitting still thinking about things. I mean, that's what I thought it was. And anyway, I sat down and the guy said, sit down, shut up, don't move, rang a bell. I sat and then I just never stopped. So that brought me to the practice. And then a friend of mine who is now, she, she became a Tibetan nun for a while. Now she's a, an internist in Palo Alto. And she uh, gave me a book by Noah's dad. Great book. A Gradual Awakening. And in that book, he said, he suggested that you go to the spiritual smorgasbord for about six months and then you choose one thing and do it for at least two years. And I went, you know, I did that. I told him I was like the Woody Allen character when he's got like the cross and the Buddha statue and he's walking around New York like pan spiritual. And, and, then, I, and then I landed here and, and Buddhist practice. And so you're going to hear me, I mean, you would expect me to hear from me say a lot about Buddha, Buddhist practice or Buddhist psychology, but I'm also going to say a lot specifically about EMDR therapy. And I'm saying this in advance to tell you that I'm not trying to get anyone, I'm not trying to fill the EMDR therapist offices in the area, I'm not trying to get you to come and train with me if you're a therapist. You know, like, that's not what I'm doing. What, what it is is that I tried the therapeutic smorgasbord for about six months, and I landed in this EMDR therapy world, and now that's all I do, is EMDR therapy and Buddhist mindfulness together. And so, the way that that can be helpful for those of you who have no interest at all in that particular modality, is that it is one of the great trauma therapies. And a lot of what Josh was saying was this, with the stuff that I would be saying in the first day of any general trauma training or any general, uh, or the, uh, the first day of EMDR training, the therapist, right? That we have to have this basis in trauma. So unsatisfactoriness is dealt with by our practice. And so is trauma. And or but, because of all the different experiences that we may or may not have gone through in our lives, those things that, you know, this person over here was like, that was so traumatic and for me, and this person had a similar experience and was like, I don't know, it was okay. Or you think about um, a major terrible events like natural disasters or, or, or national disasters, um, and, and does everyone get PTSD? No, right? Not everyone gets, you know, big problems. So what is the answer to that? The answer to that is that whether the person has it naturally or whether it can be delivered through an experience, a relationship, a protocol, a therapy, a practice, that we develop resilience, that we find internal and external resources 
that allow us to be able to, first of all, just kind of walk the earth without being bombarded with our own mishigas, mm. you know, the Jewish part. Um, and, and that you can then, if you have work that you need to do, that maybe, for instance, you've been doing through mindfulness practice, but you keep either hitting a wall or it gets to a place where it's like, I don't know, I'm just ruminating about this thing, or I'm feeling something and I don't know what it is or what it means or where it comes from, then there are other modalities that can tweak that. Right? EMDR being one of them. Somatic experience in the you know, there's a number of therapies. Josh talks about them a lot on the, on the podcast. You know, we're across the country from each other, so that's <laughs> how I know what Josh is thinking. So anyway, point being that I am very much from the both and school, not the either or school. Um, scientists not like me. Scientists like, well, it's either this or that, and then let's do a research study. I like, and it's not about throwing things at the, it's not throwing the spaghetti at the fridge either and seeing what sticks. It's let's look at the best practices of the last 2,600 years or so and utilize them as they were designed by the person who started the ball rolling. So starting from the mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness place, the Four Noble Truths are a prescription. Or the Four Noble Truths, I'm sorry, the, the Fourth Truth is a prescription. The uh, Four Noble Truths are a diagnostic. Right? Four Noble Truths were developed through the medicine of the time, Ayurveda. Buddha was searching for a way to explain this to people. He's like, I have no idea how to explain it. He even tried it a couple of times. People were like, what are you talking about? And Buddha was like, I'm not, I'm not even going to try anymore. And, and he was convinced to try. So what did he go to? He went to the science of the time. The first noble truth is the diagnosis, right? Life is unsatisfactory, it contains dukkha, it contains suffering. How true is that? I say very true. Second truth is the symptoms and the causes, right? Craving, clinging, aversion, unhealthy attachment, right? All of these things are what are causing this and also represent the symptoms of it. This addiction, basically. Right? Like that time when I got sober and I thought, eh, look, everyone's an alcoholic, I can see it. And I wasn't that far off. Right? Like everything we do is you know, craving, clinging. I want more of this, I want this or that. You know, it's the same thing. Addicts just do it a little more pronounced. So then the third truth is the cure. Right? It's like, okay, how do you, how do you end suffering? Well, you can't just, you have to go to the symptoms and the causes. So you end craving, you end clinging. And then the fourth truth is the prescription. How do you do that? Eightfold path. Right? So I, I was a Zen practitioner for a long time, so I actually didn't even use these kind of words. And I didn't even practice it this way. But when then I kind of started hanging out with Noah more and, and, and being around this community, like all I do now is read it and think it and work it and sort of see how it applies. I've seen how my Zen practice was just like this really weird version of this eightfold path of just working this prescription. 
So what is it a prescription for? It's a prescription to end suffering. What is trauma? Trauma is a pronounced form of suffering. Where does most of our suffering come from? It comes from everything that Josh just described. It really comes from when our, our emotional, mental, psychological system is designed to adapt. It's designed to bring memories, bring experiences to adaptive resolution. So it's when it doesn't get to that, the neocortex and all the rest of the brain that can make sense of it, make meaning, tell a story, use it, you know, have it be something useful. That's it's not because we're bad, it's not because we're stupid. Sometimes it's because we're two yeah. or younger. And sometimes it's because that's just the way it works. If the fight or flight becomes so pronounced, the left, you know, it shuts down. I have a colleague who says, when you're with a person who's in crisis, and you go cognitive, you try and talk to them about it, it's like sending an email, but there's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> right? So what you do is you can put it in the draft folder because it's not bad information, right? What they need is, you know, the equivalent of the hug that my kid does. So in, in the Eightfold Path, you know, we're, we're developing wisdom, and wisdom is really a set of internal resources and external resources, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, like this whole idea of the connection and the community. I develop internal resources and external resources. And the other word for that is sangha. And, and internal strength and wisdom and right understanding. And then I start to set my intention off of that wisdom. So for instance, one of the wisdom, that, some of the wisdom that I developed for myself was, I am, I used to think, if you have to go to one yoga class, I got to go to three. You know, like some people have got you know, sort of problems, and I've got, I, I just do it better. I do it more. And so I realized I needed a lot of extra help. And so I started to access that help, and that help allowed me to do this practice. Like, I would get to a place where being, going internal was not going to be an answer. It wasn't. I didn't have the internal resources to make sense of it. I didn't have the experience that allowed me to connect up all of that amygdala stuff with this part of the brain, where this part of the brain could go, and this is the most important thing that Josh said, where I know that, yes, that happened, but it's not happening now, right? The, all those, the shirt that was being worn, the sound, the smell, everything is now cataloged with successful trauma therapy, right? It's now cataloged in the right place where it's kind of like, you, you don't lose your opinion of it. It's not men in black, you know, it's not eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It's, and this is the R in EMDR. You know, when, she, when Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR, first discovered it, she thought what was happening was like a drug-like action. You know, like desensitization. Like she waved her fingers in your face and you're like, I feel better. Well, that's cool. Kind of like a benzo or something, right? <laughs> I've invented a natural, no side effect benzo. So then she kept on doing it. She kept on waving her finger at people's faces mm -hmm. because they all agreed to. And all of a sudden she's like, the, the aha moment starts to come. 
And then the six month and year follow ups would come and, and they're like still, yeah, it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm not being I'm not running away from this thing that I was running from all this time. And what does that then allow me to do? It allows me to sit down, shut up, don't move in a more coherent way. See, I can talk about this. I, in two days, I'm going to talk about this all day. <laughs> I guess I got lost. So, to move it from the Buddhist mindfulness to trauma the memories are reprocessed. We need to find a way to get the memories from the amygdala or the body or wherever they're stored to the place where I can realize that they are things that happen that are not happening now. And I can have my experiences and feel my feelings in chronological order. That is what I've seen in my office over and over and over again. At Refuge Recovery Center, that, this is what we're doing. Everyone who comes in is immediately considered to be an EMDR therapist. Everyone who comes in is immediately considered to be a Buddhist practitioner. And between the two, the mindfulness helps them to stabilize, and then the mindfulness helps them to do the trauma work. Right? I need to have a, a, a foundation where I can do that trauma work, and then they get to the other side, and then the mindfulness helps them with their, for the term for the moment will be relapse prevention, or ongoing work. 